hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we get 25 of the world's best brewers to give you their tips, tricks, and secrets. And, of course, don't forget, this spring, Simple Homebrewing, coming from Brewers Publication. Indeed, man. Uh, I'm really excited about it, finally hitting the market, and I'm even more excited that we're finally done with it. <laughs> We have now been through that book so many times, it's ridiculous. You know, and and I was saying to my wife yesterday, I keep saying, I'm done, and then I get something back to work on again, and I think that this time, we really are done. Yes, let's see if the treadmill stops. So, (laughs) yeah. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. Well, and on today's episode, we're going to head to the pub and cover a bit of beer news, some yeah, some good news in the beer industry, some bad news in the beer industry, some more good news in the beer industry, and then reasons to be angry about things in the industry. Uh, we're going to go to the brewery. We're going to talk some of Denny's recent uh, brewing experiments and my new taxonomy of brewers. And then we're going to head into the lounge where we're going to talk to Levy from the Long Beach Beer Lab and you know, really kind of dig into what I think is one of the more unique brewery experiences here in L.A. They're both a brewery and a bakery. And kind of a lot of cross-fermentation between the two, shall we say. So uh, stick around for that one because I had a lot of fun talking to Levy because, man, there's a lot of stuff going on in this tiny little space. Boy, really, man, it was just remarkable. Yep. And then, of course, a couple questions, a quick tip, and something other to get you on your way and help you have a beery, beery time. But before we do all that, here are a few messages from the people who make this program possible. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 individuals who share a common passion, beer. Since 1978, the HA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world, providing brewing resources, supporting homebrewer-friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at breweries and homebrew shops, and hosting one-of-a-kind events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer-loving peers at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners... Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. We're back, and to get started here, we have a few announcements. And first of all, we want to let you know that episode 47 of The Brew Files is out, and Drew talks to Nick Impelletieri from Yeast Bay about some changes going on there. Yeah, you know, now we got to discover what his new bay is going to be, because he's moving the company from San Francisco to Portland. And then, uh, hey, by the time you're hearing this, we're not here anymore. 
Nope, we're gone. We're in Australia. And that's right, because we're going to be there for the Australian National Homebrewers Conference. So if you're in Melbourne or in the area, uh, please come down to the come down to the conference and come check us out. We're going to be there uh, giving talks, recording a live podcast. Jay Goodwin from the Rare Barrel will be there. Chris White, Peter Simons, uh, and a bunch of others. Post-conference, we'll be making a trip up to Sydney at Batch Brewing Company on Tuesday, October the 30th. Uh, you can come hear us uh, speak and enjoy some beers and ask us questions there at Batch Brewing. You better hurry. Go to experimentalbrewing.com slash Sydney to buy a ticket because tickets are rapidly running out. Yeah, and if you're in the Sydney area and can't make it to Melbourne, we'd love to see you. And we have some things coming up in March we want to let you know about. I'm headed off to Asheville, North Carolina, March 22nd and 23rd, to the Brew Your Own Boot Camp, where Marshall Schott and I will be teaching a class on homebrew experimentation. There will be a bunch of other people doing stuff there. I think Chris White's going to be there for that one, along with John Palmer, and just a ton of people uh, covering different topics. So uh, if you're interested in learning a whole bunch about homebrewing, Go to byobootcamp.com and sign up. If you mention experimental brewing, we'll get a little bit of money back at us to help keep the show going. Uh, also in March, Drew is heading to Dallas for the Blue Bonnet Brew Off, the largest homebrew competition in the United States, other than uh, the national homebrew competition that the AHA runs. Big event, uh, so you have two chances to see one or the other of us in March. And don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, click the Amazon, AHA, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It is called Nowzad. It's a great organization in Afghanistan. It was originally founded to help soldiers with the animals that they adopted there and help them bring them home, and now they've expanded that mission and... Uh, Great organization, it's vets, it's pets, how much better does it get? Indeed. And now, it's time for, for feedback. And our first piece of feedback comes from listener Derek from Scotland, who says, I listen to all my podcasts at one and a half times speed. It only took a wee while to get used to, and it makes quicker to go through my backlog of podcasts and audiobooks. Normally, it's only noticeable if there's music. However, sometimes when you guys have guests on with a different or let's say more difficult accent, I slow it down to one time speed, at which point your guest is speaking normally, and you and Denny sound kind of like you're speaking in slow motion. Anyway, it always amuses me. Also, I can't imagine what it would do to my brain if I ever spoke to you guys in person. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can, I can guess because I've seen the effects of speaking to us in person, and it's not pretty. And I'm still just wondering how anybody can listen to me at one and a half times speed. I already sound like a chipmunk on espresso. You know what? I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. Well, hey, it is what it is. But hey, if it helps you get through more podcasts, more power to you. <laughs> <laughs> and our next piece of feedback comes from uh, Redditor uh, T. Linz, who asked about the lifting that we talked about in the last episode and says, has Denny considered switching to mash in a bag? And using a pulley to lift the mash bag. Uh, yes, I have. And I immediately discounted it and decided that wasn't for me. Uh, number one, it's more work than I want to do setting up that pulley and lifting the bag with it every time. And number two, I already had all the pieces around to, uh, to do my no lift brewing system. 
So it just made a lot more sense for me to do it that way. There we go. And our final piece of feedback comes from Chris Wilburn, who says, Just listen to your podcast where you reviewed the alt beer, and the brewer was mentioning his lack of access to Mechagrade. While owned by InBev, Northern Brewer does sell it and orders over $30 ship free. It's the only way I could get it at a decent price in Ohio. And while you or he might be reticent to support Northern Brewer, it does give us access to that malt. It's a fair point. Northern Brewer does ship for $30, although a lot of shenanigans going on with the prices around that. And yes, they are also owned in part by uh, ZX Ventures, which is owned by Anheuser-Busch InBev. Yeah, and you know, if if you decide that you would rather not order from an ABI-owned company... Uh, you have a couple other options to get that malt. For one, uh, Steinbart's in Portland sells it and will ship it to you. And uh, you can actually buy it directly from Mechagrade. If you go to mechagrade.com, you can buy all their malts directly from them. As I recall, they're like sixty-two fifty a bag. You will have to pay shipping, but it might be the kind of thing that your karma and your conscience uh, can put up with. And not to mention the fact that if you go in with some others, you can get multiple bags and sort of cut down some of the shipping costs, too. Yep. So, so there are some alternatives there. There we go. And I think with that, it's time to have a beer. I believe so, too. So we're going to head over to the pub, talk about the beer life, and have a couple beers. Stick around. We're going to be right back. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Mechagrade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their 8th generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit mechagrade.com. We've come over here to the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, wherever the heck you are, and we're having a couple beers, and I'm going to start today. I've been going through this like retro rediscovery series of beers. I've been trying beers that uh, I maybe haven't had for quite a while, going back to them and checking them out again. Today, I'm drinking a Chimay Premier. That's the red label one. This may have been one of the first Belgian beers I ever tried many years ago, and I just 
loved it and grokked it immediately. It's rich. Uh, it's it's nicely malty. I won't say it's sweet, but it does have just maybe a hint of sweetness to it. But it's got a nice hop balance to it too that uh, that really makes it really drinkable. It's about seven percent, so I can actually drink a whole glass full without having to worry about falling down. There you go. And speaking about drinking a full glass full and maybe falling down, but having such a delicious time at it. I decided that in honor of some of our stories for this this week, I'm drinking a Russian River Plenty the Elder. Still wow. one of the finest damn beers out there. And I mean, I know I know there are a lot of people out there, oh, Plenty's not that great anymore. There's lots of beers that have eclipsed it. Nah. Plenty to me is still aces for that mix of bright hop character, drinkability, and just my desire to keep having more of it. Yeah, it is. It's a it's a great beer. It's uh, it's nearly as good as the beers from Bailbreaker. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but I do know that the part of the reason to celebrate by having a Russian River Plenty of the Elder is that our good buddy Vinny, uh, Vinny Slurzo, he now has officially opened his brand new state of the art brewing facility. And has already bottled the first batches of Plenty of the Elder out of that uh, that brewery. Wow. And, and, so, it, and it cost him like uh, a meager $30 million. Yeah, which was a cost overrun, but still actually apparently within what uh, the banks were allowing him. And yeah, so he and Natalie opened up the new brewery in Windsor. Uh, this is an upgrade to their older production facility. They still have the brew pub in downtown Santa Rosa. But uh, they've now effectively moved out of the old Windsor Brewery that they've offered for sale. And I don't know if anybody bought it but uh, yet, but it's uh, supposed to be going on the market for sale for somebody to basically pick up as a turnkey operation. And in the meanwhile, the hope is that the new brewery with its tasting room and all the facilities that they have with it is going to allow them to expand production and hopefully make the plenies not so rare to people. <laughs> That'd be so. cool, man. Uh Good luck to him. I hope you guys uh, do really well there. Well, and I'm just amazed because, like, I I first met Vinny doing stuff w around Temecula, you know, with Blind Pig and his family's winery down there because that's where that's Vinny's background. And then I remember he moved up to Northern California to open Russian River in conjunction with Corbell, uh, the the makers of fine champagne. And uh, Corbell eventually decided they didn't want to to run a brewery anymore and then he got the name Russian River back from them and has grown ever since so good on him but now for every big opening in the industry we also sometimes have to talk about closings and the news just came out as we're recording this that Toolbox Brewing down in San Diego has announced that they're closing their doors uh, like literally today um, Toolbox if you don't remember they became really famous a couple years back when they opened for these incredible sour beers that they were doing. They were really known for like really top-notch uh, sours. And that was thanks to uh, one of their brewers, a guy named Peter, who is now, I think, with Belching Beaver. And he, he's, he's been around the industry for a little bit, but he was great. They brought in another brewer after he left to kind of continue with the, the brewing program for sours. And then he left to go to McKellar. And then the brewery shifted focus and started focusing more on the hazy IPAs and the milkshake IPAs and, and these things. And I don't know any of the backstory behind it, but uh, apparently not enough to be able to sustain themselves. I mean, it could be that uh, the hazy IPAs were not what their clientele wanted. It could be that there are so many hazy IPAs in there that people kind of went yawn. There's another one. 
Mm-hmm. It could have something to do with, uh, you know, our next story, which is about uh, how big the brewing industry is in San Diego County. The story that I'm looking at here says that there are 178 craft brewing locations in San Diego County, more than any other U.S. county. So maybe, you know, if you can't really stand out among 178 breweries, people are just going to kind of forget about you. Yeah, but of course, I thought the funny part in the metric here was, okay, so they talked about San Diego's craft revenue is still up uh, in comparison to the nationwide trend, which is only 1.6%, and um, the California has actually fallen by 0.33%, so kind of in the margin of error zone. But the part that really cracked me up was their comparison was that the San Diego craft brewing industry pulls in three times the revenue of the San Diego Padres. You know, I guess I don't find that all that surprising. But well, no, I find the I find the framing of it to be funny. Of course, it also helps that the Padres have been the the whipping boy of the NL West for I don't know how long, but forever. Right. And they bring in uh, $802 million, according to this report. Yeah, right. And what's interesting also is that over a third of all the craft beer produced in California comes from San Diego County breweries. I mean, that is remarkable. Yep. I'm completely not surprised. So, and San Diego is having other breweries shut down. Uh, They just lost, uh, what, uh, Monkey Paw and Intergalactic. And now we just talked about Toolbox uh, shutting down. But, I mean, again, it's 178 breweries in a county that is less than a third of the size of L.A. County, you know, at least in terms of population. Or, no, actually, it's not even that. It's actually smaller than L.A. City. I think uh, San Diego has something like 3.5 million, 4.5 million people in it. And uh, L.A. County is like 17. <laughs> so, wow. Uh, wow. We, only have, we only have 80. So... Uh, yeah, I suspect there's some market saturation thing, and let's face it, there's only so much liver capacity to, to go around. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, you know, you only have so much shelf space, uh, so much bar space. Uh, people can only drink so much beer. I know. We keep trying, though. We keep <laughs> that's trying. That's right, man. Take that as a challenge, huh? Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, that leads us to, you know, talking about shelf space, uh, leads us to a story that came out of Florida this week, you know, my home state. Uh the biggest grocery chain in Florida is Publix, uh, and Publix is pretty much a Florida institution. I mean, almost any Floridian will tell you, I love their chicken subs. Uh, I, I'm not kidding. And like a lot of the major uh, grocery store chains, there's some funniness that happens around the idea of what beer ends up on those shelves. And so the Florida Brewers Guild is pushing back because they claim that ABI our good friends, Anheuser-Busch and Bev, are using their brands like Golden Road and Carbach and Goose Island and all that to drastically cut down the footprint of independent craft beer uh, choices in the grocery store. And I, I, for one, am completely unsurprised. Yeah, I I feel the same way. It's no surprise at all. And I just want to beat this drum again. This is the problem that we are harping on over and over again when big beer buys craft breweries. A lot of people say, well, you know what? The beer didn't change. I'm happy for the people getting the money, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's true. But what you're not looking at is that their ultimate goal is to limit your choice in beer to only stuff that they make or own. And that's just not right, people. 
Uh, you deserve free choice. You deserve to get whatever beer you like that the market will support. And uh, that doesn't mean an artificially manipulated market where somebody is purposely limiting your choices. Yeah, and don't forget, I mean, one of the things I don't think a lot of people really realize unless you've been around the industry for a while, you know, those big distributors, you know, the guys who are carrying those Anheuser-Busch products, they have shelf layouts, like purpose-planned shelf layouts that, you know, are designed to set up and say, oh, hey, you know, here's where all the Budweiser goes. Here's where all the Coors goes. Here's where, you know, like a little box on the top shelf is, you know, six-pack wide. It says local craft beer option. You know, this is what happens. This is why we don't like this. So there you go. And Colorado is the Colorado Brewers Guild is actually paying attention to the same issue because they're about to have uh, craft beer sales allowed in grocery stores uh, coming up shortly. So you can bet your your bippy they're they're watching. Yep, indeed. Okay, I think that uh, we've complained enough. How about if we finish these beers and head over to the brewery? Yes, I think we need to go make some beer. Alrighty, stick around. Please listen to these messages from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll be in the brewery. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super-fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Yakima Chief Hops, formerly known as YCH Hops, is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest, with a mission to connect family hop farms to the world's finest brewers. Yakima Chief Hops is thrilled about the release of their new innovative product, Cryo Hops, to both commercial and home brewers, providing intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased brew house yield. Visit yakimachief.com to learn more. Welcome back, and thank you for listening to those messages from our fine, fine sponsors. And now, of course, we're in the place where the magic happens. We're in the land of steaming stainless steel, gleaming copper, and, well, glory. Glory for all of us. <laughs> so we hope. Yes. And, but now, of course, we're here to talk about uh, Denny's latest brewing adventure. So, Dincenzo, what did you get up to? Yeah, well, you know, I talked about how I was uh, working towards setting up a no-lift brewery, and I uh, made some progress on that in my last brew day while I was brewing my American brown ale called No Tie Brown. Um, I used my grandfather basically as a hot liquor tank and pumped that water up into the cooler. And I tried something I haven't tried before, which is underletting the mash, meaning I put the grains in the cooler first, I run the water in through what would normally be the outlet of the mash tun, 
so that it kind of goes in underneath the grain. Supposedly, it's a more gentle process, which reduces the uh, dissolved oxygen that you get in the grain. Uh, it's it's one step of the low oxygen brewing process, although I didn't do it for that reason. Uh, I'll, I don't know if it will have enough effect on anything to uh, to really reduce the oxygen levels in my mash. Because one thing I found, and admittedly, I've only done this once now, so uh, this is this is not a repeated trial test. But what I found was that uh, it didn't distribute the heat through the mash as evenly as it does when I pour the water in from the top. So I had to do more stirring in order to equilibrate the temperature throughout the mash tun at, at different depths and places in the tun. So I don't know if I actually saved anything in terms of oxygen or not, but it was nice and easy to do and worked well in other respects. Probably the next time I do this system, rather than using the grain father, I'm probably going to use a mash and boil and my new Blickman Riptide pump, which we'll have a review of here coming up. Because although the pump in the grandfather worked well, it was a little bit slow. Its capacity is a, is a little bit low. And, you know, that was not really an issue for anything except for my impatience. Well, and also from other people looking and going, you're using a grandfather as an HLT? Well, you know, why not? If you've got it, you use it. <laughs> I know, it's just funny. So now, doing the underlighting, I know in part you said was to help with the no lifting or at least the less lifting. Right. But what uh, what other impacts do you think you'll have from it? Or what are you hoping to see? I don't really expect any other impacts. Like I said, um, it's a uh, one of the key procedures of the people who brew low oxygen. But because I didn't deoxygenate the water before doing that, because uh, I didn't really pay attention to uh, oxygen pickup the rest of the way through the mash, other than being moderately careful like I usually do to not do anything stupid which doesn't always work. Um, you know, I just don't really expect that it will have any real impact, but you know, we'll see if I can tell any difference in this beer, uh, from the previous versions I've made, because I've made this beer a lot of times. Well, there you go. Experience matters or something. And speaking of experience, I'm getting ready to do the talk down in Australia. And one of my talks is on the power of session beers. And it got me to thinking about a better way of talking about brewers levels of experience and sort of, uh, you know, developing a taxonomy, because I'm a nerd, and nerds like taxonomies. So I see three different stages to, to brewers, at least at the moment. I'll probably add more as time goes on, you know, delineate some of the fine gradations. But the ones I see are the first-timer, you know, and that's the the brewer who's brand new at it, you know, kind of the, the My Little Pony, eager beaver-type brewer. They find a recipe, they stick to it, and they are elated to be brewing and making beer and everything that they do is wonderful. And usually what they're reaching for is something that is both familiar and comfortable. Like I want to make an IPA like I know. Um, the next step up from that is the expert. And if you can't hear the air quotes around expert, insert them now, please. Uh, and the expert is somebody who, unlike the first timer, you know, they know all the workings. They kind of know the, the ins and the outs and how the process is supposed to be working. And they're full of ideas. And not all of them are good. And they're, some of them are just out there. And it's what I kind of think of as the, hey, look at me dance phase, you know, where you're doing all the crazy, silly things. Yeah, well, uh, it's, it's like being a teenager. It's the stage where you think you know everything. 
I miss being a teenager and having that confidence in how much I knew. <laughs> yeah, and then you get older and you discover your parents aren't as stupid as you thought they were. Nope. And then the final uh, stage where, you know, hopefully most of us will graduate to is what I call the master stage. And that's the person who knows what works. They know the how to find the clean way forward through any any sort of bramble that they encounter in the brewing process. And really, it's about craftsmanship, not showmanship. And usually, to my mind, that also entails a bit of a return to basics. This is very much where I have uh, arrived at, and it's very much uh, what our next book is about, too. Yep. So there you go. You've got the first-timer, the expert, and the master. Where do you think you fall on that line, and... Uh, what uh, what pieces did I miss? Did I did I miss a stage? Did, is there another piece of the taxonomy? We need complete taxonomies, people. Yeah, you know what? Uh, I'll have to think about that. Is there another stage? There, there may be, but I think that you've done a really really good job there of identifying the the major points. All right. Now, speaking of brewing, why don't we go talk to a brewer? That's a really good idea. This is a really fascinating interview. Uh, Drew talking to Levy from Long Beach Beer Lab. So uh, stick around, check out these messages from our sponsors, and we're going to be right back. Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet. Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at genesisfermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. Autumn has arrived, and so has the opportunity to brew new seasonal styles. Yeast's robust and ruddy private collection offers a fresh pairing of strains for cooler days and palates seeking more body and complexity without compromising approachability. 2782 Star Explore the history of tart, fruity, and refreshing Goza-style beer with the latest book from Brewer's Publication, Goza, brewing a classic German beer for the modern era. Written by award-winning veteran brewer Fal Allen, Goza includes 27 recipes including sea quench sour from Dogfish Head Craft Brewery and Ruben Brewer's 2017 Great American Beer Festival gold medal winning Goza. Right now, Brewer's Publications is giving experimental homebrewing listeners a discount on Goza. Go to brewerspublications.com and use code EXPERIMENTAL to take 20% off Goza. That's right, you'll save 20% when you use code EXPERIMENTAL at brewerspublications.com. It's just about time, don't you think it's about time, we talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings, beer, 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 beer. Hey, we are over here in the lounge, we are lounging and getting ready to listen to a really interesting interview about a brewery that's not like any other brewery I've ever heard of. Yeah, and this is the Long Beach Beer Lab. They're, oddly enough, located down in Long Beach, not too far from Liberation that we talked to last week, and or not too far from Liberation where we talked in the last episode. Uh, and this is the brainchild of Leve Fried. And look, we've talked for years about the idea that Bread and beer are intertwined, you know, and people arguing, did civilization happen because of bread or did it happen because of beer? You know, did we settle down in order to get grain to make bread or beer? That's an age-old question, and for 
centuries, millennia, brewers and bakers have been kind of joined at the hip. You know, bakers taking the yeast that brewers produce because we produce too much to do anything with, using that to make bread. And sometimes the bread ending up back in the beer. What Levy and his wife have done is made a brewery bakery. And sometimes the leftover grains from the mash go into the bread. Sometimes bread goes into the into the mash. He has a kvass tank going that has, you know, just giant piles of loaves of old stale bread, uh, you know, to make a beverage. And it is the weirdest little thing I've ever seen in terms of just an all-electric brewery that really looks like somebody amped up a homebrew system. And now he's, of course, expanding. He's got this whole other neighboring building that is now opened up to him. So this tiny little space is really on the verge of growing. They're actually even about to open up a second tap room. So sit back and listen to this because he's got a lot of really fascinating ideas. And the place is just, well, it's pretty damn unique. So now uh, tell me about the beer that you, that this is the milk, the plum, milk, the plum and a half kvass. Yeah. So essentially we have a milk, the mustache, which is our flagship farmhouse. It's barrel fermented, barrel aged uh, farmhouse, kind of a mix of a bunch of different cultures that we have. But it's uh, pretty quick to get funky, quick to get tart. And then I had a uh, about 10 barrels of uh, kvass, cherry kvass that I had that kind of was moving slowly in the tap room so we ended up blending those and then throwing in about a thousand pounds of plums that we produced in-house uh, or processed in-house and we uh put those together let them mature for about three months and that's what we got over there so it's not really going to be so much more barrelly than the flagship mm-hmm. but it's definitely going to be complex and nuanced and it's going to have just a little bit more uh, flavors going on there than the than the just the straight mustache. Well, and if that idea sounds intriguing to you, then uh, ladies and gentlemen, hold on to your shorts <laughs> because I'm sitting down here at the Long Beach Beer Lab in oddly enough Long Beach, California. <laughs> Somehow, really name and sitting across from me is Levi. Levi, introduce yourself to the audience. Hello, my name is. It's actually pronounced Levy. Levy. Uh, uh, it's okay. It's the Yiddish pronunciation of Levi. <laughs> uh, Levi Freed from Long Beach, California, uh, formerly doctor, scientist, physician scientist, and Wait. now brewmaster. F- full-on actual qualified yeah. nerd. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, now playing around with yeast. Well, hey, you know, that's still just being a nerd. It's just yeah. now a practical nerd. Exactly. And just to lay the groundwork for everybody, you know, this is kind of cool. I mean, we're in a relatively small little building, but, you know, this is, to my mind, it's a relatively rare sort of operation because you've brought two things historically that have been always associated and separated now back together again. We're kind of old school because we are not only in a brewery, but also a bakery. Yeah. So, I mean, that in itself kind of tells the story of how we got here and what we're about and what we're trying to do because it wasn't one day that we decided, hey, we should open up a bakery and a brewery. That, you know, that's how things were done. It was kind of this progression of uh, going through our educations and and doing things. Uh, It's almost uh, 12 12 years in the making, if you will. My background's in, in medicine and biopharmaceuticals and my wife's is in pastry and culinary. So throughout my education in undergrad and then grad school and then medicine and then her working at different uh, establishments and fine dining and bakeries and cafes and then hotels, 
we've kind of amassed this amount of uh, expertise and training and, and, and knowledge in certain things, namely uh, leavening sciences and fermentation. And um, my background in cell cultures has helped me be able to like have the yeast that we need on hand and be able to brew really interesting beers. And then we were able to pair that with, you know, baking and pastry. And, and then the idea said, uh, came about to, you know, say like, well, how could we combine these two practically? Uh, we thought about writing like a, a beer and food pairing cookbook and, and all of these things. Um, I was a home brewer since the, you know, my beginning of the edu- of my education and work. And um, we decided that possibly putting a bakery and a brewery together would work out nowadays because, like you said, it historically kind of went together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and the whole history of just using the mash to then use to, to bake off the bread or whether it was soaking the bread in water to make stuff like kvass or sourdough ales. Um, all of these things kind of take place in the uh, in the same place, you know, yeah. in the same in the same environment. Well, I mean, you, you know, you look at like ancient Egypt or Sumeria or Babylonia, and, and you see those things combined together. You know, bread became beer. You know, loaves of uh, loaves of barley bread soaked in water to then start the beer process, and then and bakers taking barm from the uh, from brewers because if there's one thing brewers produce more than they produce beer it's a lot of excess yeast right and you know that going back uh, going back into the bakeries to actually go start the bread again yep so it, it it's interesting so i mean because to me that seems like i mean yeah it's an absolute a perfect historical union but i haven't really seen anybody doing that at least on any sort of scale yeah, I think I think for the most part, what um, the problem is, well, there's no problem, but there's a couple of things. One is it's hard to open up one business, yeah. let alone two businesses, and that's essentially what we did. We opened up a bakery and a brewery. Um, the second thing is is that the cities don't know what to do with that sort of you know regulation. <laughs> Are you a bakery? Are you a a brewery? Are you a restaurant? Like, what do you fall under? So it took us a little bit to convince the city that we're not a restaurant because they did not want to put in another brew pub. They already had uh, Beachwood Mm -hmm. and Rock Bottom and Belmont Brewing Companies and Ballast Point, which were all considered brew pubs under a restaurant zoning. They wanted manufacturing breweries. Right. So we decided, oh, in order for us to do this baking, we would be considered a bakery which is a ready-to-eat permit, no complex proteins or anything like that, and a brewery. And so the bakery is completely enclosed within the brewery. So there's no, you know, so it's kind of like having a little kiosk of, you know, baking in a small little brewery. So it's, your, it's, it's your pop-up stand. It's, it is absolutely. I always tell people it's like going to the food court at the mall and, you know, each one of those food courts have their own license. Uh, uh, vendors have their own license, and the mall has a separate license. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what we are. We are a manufacturing brewery with a manufacturing bakery inside. I, I, I'm a big fan of it. I mean, when I've come down here before, I've, I've gone home and, you know, I'll take home a beer for me, and I'll take home bread for me and my <laughs> wife. <laughs> but, hey, I, I say, hey, honey. Uh, yeah. yeah. It wasn't just about me. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and and then of course people can come in and they get you know like you have a, even like a nice fermented vegetable tray that people can take away to to eat. But let's let's talk a little bit about the actual brewery since we are a brewing podcast because you know you, you we just took a, a quick walk through in it and to me it's you know sort of an odd duck of a creature. You know, it's not your typical uh, brewery setup. Yeah, so I'm a firm believer that beer is made in the cellar and that if you can make decent work, you can make great beer. Mm-hmm. And um, so we went heavy on trying to like make sure that our fermentation control and our fermenters were, were up to spec and, and our ability to pass that on to packaging and everything was seamless there. The brew house is there to make work. So it's not. It doesn't look pretty. It's it's it's, it's, it's not small. the highest tech piece. Exactly. It's not. Yeah. It doesn't have you know like uh, all of those bells and whistles and everything like that. It's my homebrew um, three barrel homebrew setup that I had piped together to make six barrels. Right. So just to explain it to people, and basically three barrel kettles, and they look like they're the kind of Italian wine Italian kettle. wine yep. fermenters. Yeah. Um, Modified, but now what you have, and we'll take a picture of this to show everybody because it's yeah. kind of wild. They're electrically powered, but the right. two three barrel kettles are actually piped together in the middle with a sort of a recirculation pumping oh. system to draw from the bottom and pull back up through the kettle so everything stays nice and even. Exactly. So both kettles are like uh, the same uh, gravities, same temperatures, uh, and now I have like twice the amount of uh, heating power. Uh, well, I was going to say, when you first, sh- when you first, oh yeah, no, I, I split the wort, so I got three barrels in each of these. I was like, well then, but how do you deal with, you know, splitting the hops and making sure that everything's even, and then you point out the recirculation, and it's yeah. like, okay, that's actually a really clever little solution. Yeah, so making making wort is, uh, is you know, when I, when I was homebrewing, I used to be a little bit more bold and say, like, any monkey can make wort. You know, it takes <laughs> a real brewer to make, to, to work the cellar. And make beer, and, and honestly, what are we? We're just making wort. You know, mm-hmm. the yeast makes beer. Yeah, yeah we're just, just we're just sugar uh, sugar manufacturers. Exactly. So just make sure it's clean. You don't fuck it up. Oh, sorry, you don't mess it up. And uh, and just let the yeast uh, do the rest. Get out of the way. Don't tinker with it too much. And and uh, I think I think if, from the beers you see before you, a lot of these are just going to be fermentation forward mm-hmm. uh, drinkers right now. So, Well, I think that leads us into a perfect time to talk about some of the beer that we have here in front of us because you've poured us uh, five samples. And the very first one is your, your German lager. Yeah. Uh, and what's the, the name? It's called the Riggs, the Riggs after the Wrigley neighborhood that we're in right now. Um, I wanted a, a beer that the neighborhood could get behind. Uh, love to drink and Long Beach is like a, it's a port it's a port workers city mm-hmm. so the blondes and the loggers are really really important here people just like to finish their day at work sit back and relax and not have to think too much about it and I wanted a lager that the the neighborhood and the city could be proud of so mm-hmm. named it after the city um, it's fermented with 3470 that's the fermentous dry yeast mm-hmm. Uh, Which is a workhorse. Yeah, workhorse. And it's just absolutely beautiful. Uh, brilliant beer, good head. Uh, the water quality from the RO is just really soft and, mm-hmm. and crushable. So I was very happy with this, how but this beer came out. It's clean. It's crisp. It's got actually kind of a nice 
honey malt sweetness to it, mm-hmm. you know, but without being cloying. Yeah. You're not sitting here smacking something off your lips. And then you got just enough hop bite in the background to really kind of pull it together and get you right. into that next piece. Next it's piece. next sip. <laughs> so what's the malt on it? The malt on that is uh, Pilsner. Mm-hmm. And and it's uh, Wireman Pilsner, Wireman Wheat. And, and that's it. Uh, and then just like just a nice little dosing of like noblesse cops. Uh, saws. Saws. So, so we're go. doing saws bittering and then we do a saws at flame out. Yeah, see, and I, and I think you've nailed it. I mean, like, this is this is more characterful than, say, you know, a mass-produced lager right. that, that you can go down to the corner store and get, but still no nonsense and gets out of the way. Mm-hmm. You know, I could, yeah, I could, see, I could see getting a couple of the, the big glasses going here and just going... Yeah, so that's, <laughs> that's what this beer is about. This beer is about the pint. Um, and like I said, my recipes aren't... aren't you're going to see across the board a little trend of how my recipes are formulated, but um, really, I don't, I, I don't want to mess with what the yeast is giving us. It's giving us a, that the ability to express the malt in a very, like you said, a, a malt honey sweetness, mm-hmm. and let the hops kind of just crisp up everything and kind of step out of the way and do its do its business. So, normally, one of the questions I ask brewers is omitting the word balance. Describe your brewing philosophy. Yeah, I don't like the word balance either. I, th- I think it's overused, but it's definitely necessary. My brewing philosophy is to create interesting beers that people could drink by the pint. Mm-hmm. Well, and looking at the board that you have downstairs, you know, what do we have? How many do we have on top right now? About 20. 20. And, I mean, you have some quote-unquote normal beers. You have the rigs, and you've got a couple of IPAs and, and a porter. And then the other half of the list, you know, you kind of go start craving bonkers. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know, right back to that, uh, to the Kavos goes, you right. know, or Kavos milk the funk piece that we started Right. With. And then there's a sourdough goza and <laughs> uh, fermented with sourdough starter. And I've had full straight Kvass, which is 100% sourdough loaves, up on the board before. No, no sort of malt, just mm. sourdough loaves and sourdough starter. And uh, it, it I really, I really like those from uh, interesting fermentations that go back to like the home brewing roots mm-hmm. of you know, reminding me of when my wife and I would be in the kitchen, and be like, "Hey, what if we threw you know this in here?" And then you know, using our knowledge about fermentation and 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 fermentation studies, be able to say, "Okay, we could pull this off by by actually knowing what we're doing and." If it's over pitching and using less oxygen and over oxygenating and under pitching, so we do different things to kind of coax out different flavors that that we're that we're trying to do. So I think that's very important to be able to nail the basics in styles that everybody loves and are familiar with. So they come into your brewery and they say, "I know I like wheat, wheat beers and wit beers," or "I know I know I like." Bloggers, and then having them taste it, and it's like, yes, that's the perfect example of what I'm looking for. Because Long Beach is not a sophisticated town. They're very, very, very much down-to-earth people who want the basics, and so I'm trying to provide that in a new light. So, for instance, we'd look at our Whit beer, which is our next beer here. Again, this is 50% Wireman pills, 50% Wireman wheat. And then fermented with the Ho Garden strain of yeast. And then at the end, 
we do something a little bit different with this one is we will we don't use coriander or orange peel we blend back our milk and mustache farmhouse ale in kind of like in an homage to what they probably did mm-hmm. prior to to uh, 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 cell culturing and pure cultures and backslop, if you will, some of that stock ale mm-hmm. in with the wheat beer and give it some of those tartness and phenolics that are so apparent in wit beer nowadays, but using only beer. So this is Reinheitsgebot. <laughs> you know, and so no or so the the, the 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 Germans have nothing against this Belgian wheat, you know, uh, which traditionally they feel the Belgians like to throw everything in the kitchen sink in their beers. Um, so we get all those nuances and all those flavors just from fermentation. It's a it's a seven day grain to glass beer. See, and I keep trying to tell homebrewers they take too much time making their beers. They can push these things a little bit faster than they do. So it's interesting to me because with this one, yeah, I mean, I still get those citrus notes. I still get the spice notes. And then I get that that hay, that, you know, that the sort of earthy character that's coming from the other cultures that are in there. And then at the very end, just as the beer's leaving, somewhat appropriate for, you know, where we are, that, that breath after you swallow, what I get on that retro uh, nasal uh, sensation is, is bread dough, you yeah, know, bread dough, dough biscuits, and, yeah. and crackers, and yeah. So I mean, I, I I think that out of all of our beers, this beer really really talks to what we're what our brewing philosophy is about. A very simple malt bill, straightforward fermentation, and then just kind of letting the blending and that kind of ode to to tradition kind of come come in and and say, yeah, this is how it's done. They weren't throwing orange peel and coriander in their beer, not until they lost all their stock ale from their, on all the mixed fermentation. So I, I actually think this beer would be great to do like a year vintage of and see mm-hmm. kind of how the Brett would uh, come into play. But right now it just tastes like a good Belgian wit. Well, and I'm, I'm not kidding. Like if you, hadn't told me, if you hadn't told me there was no citrus in there, I, I would assume there were citrus thrown into this. Mm-hmm. So... It's really and yeah, I'd be really curious because I mean this the milk the the, the milk culture yeah uh, that comes from milk the funk yeah and so it's got a whole bunch of different stuff in it yeah there's uh, the the recipe was from the uh, first milk the funk kind of like national brew collab that mm-hmm. everybody's going to brew the same recipe and then they were going to pitch their own sort of culture and so when we were brewing this in the garage my wife and I were like oh we have this culture that we really love we grew it up from you know bottle drags and then some some cultures that we've took off of off of some some grains and fruits and everything and we said oh we really like this we've been growing up for quite some time and we're going to pitch it all together and um and and so we used the recipe, we pitched it. Uh, we didn't have um, we didn't have an open fermenter at the time, so we mm-hmm. were just going to go with uh, with just barrel barrel fermenter, barrel aged, mm-hmm. kind of get that huge oaky bite in it. And if we want, we could drink that right now, kind of sure. just try and taste that. All right, and so uh, this is uh, the milk, the mustache, right? Milk, the mustache. Yeah, no milk in- involved. It's. Uh, it was a uh, Milk the Funk collab with a guy here in Long Beach who has a really, really neat mustache. 
so we just called it Milk the Mustache. It's um, it's it's tart. Mm-hmm. It's not earth shattering, you know, um, sourness. Mm-hmm. So we don't call it really a sour. Um, and uh, you get a good kind of like stone fruit peach mm-hmm. nectarine thing going on. Good yeah, balance. A little of bit oak. of citric acid in the background. Yeah. yeah, and then you get the yeah you get the oak coming in at the end is almost like a, a sandalwood. Exactly. Um, and what's interesting to me is that this is a this is actually how I like my quote unquote sour beers. I know the taxonomy for sour beers is terrible. Yeah, people people need to figure out a better way. That's why we call it Tart Farmhouse. Yeah. But this is this is kind of like how I like these things because you get a lot of people who are doing sour beers either at the homebrew level or at the commercial level and it's almost like they're trying to make uh, weaponized beer <laughs> yeah it's the the sour equivalent of the ibu wars right yeah. yeah no absolutely and i mean this has sourness this lets you know that there's something else going on but it's not making you go i feel the enamel being stripped away from my teeth yeah right? you know that's um and, and and like we opened up with that question you asked me what my philosophy on brewing is i said that it should in omitting the word balance <laughs> uh you should be able to drink a pint of it doesn't mean you have to mm-hmm. but you can so even the even the most stunty beer that you do exactly should still be drinkable in a pint form exactly and and i think and i think this kind of shows that off considerably well, and it's interesting because it also has arguably the most standout color that we have here on the table with the, the I'm guessing the, some of that coloration is picked up from the barrel and mm-hmm. you know, age, yep. yeah, oxidation. Um, and there's also other things like aromatic malt that we put in it because it is a, it's a three-month barrel-age, barrel, barrel-fermented barrel-age, and then it goes about three months in conditioning, mm-hmm. uh, either in bottle or in a keg. And... Um, so there, it, there's some time. It's a, it's a six-month turnaround for that beer, and we produce a lot of it. Okay, so, I, I, think, I think every time I've been around, Milk the Mustache has been on, so yeah. I don't think I've ever not seen it on. Yeah, we're at batch five right now, um, and, and which is amazing for a tart yeah. beer in a one-year-old brewery. Well, now let's go back to the fact that, I mean, it's obvious that you have sort of a playful streak like in terms of... Yeah, that uh, thinking about some of these things from a culinary point of view and, and how you can transform things. Was there ever a batch like this, either here or at the homebrew level, where you had one of those ideas, I'm going to try this, and it ended up not working? Oh, yeah. All, I mean, all the time, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, not all, every beer works out. And part of being a good brewer is knowing when to dump a beer. Um, Unfortunately, in sour beer brewing or uh, wild beer fermentations, oxygen exposure or anything like that, and we do a lot of aging on fruits without any sort of... Uh, sometimes we don't even clean off the skins. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you can get a lot of uh, acetone, ethyl acetate kind of notes on there, and, and then we have to dump the batch. Or uh, in some cases, we, we have a fermentation guy here, and we just convert it into malt vinegar. Uh, we got some malt vinegar barrels here. Wait, wait hold on. You actually have vinegar barrels in in, in house? Brewery. Yeah. <laughs> it, you're not worried about the worried about cross contamination with that. <laughs> we haven't touched it yet, so yeah, I'm not worried. Like, I don't think 
that uh, bugs jump from barrel to barrel. They haven't learned that one yet. Well, no, I agree. They they don't jump. I don't I don't sample (laughs) (laughs) with Ah. a thief and then go right into the next one. But um, that being said, I do think that there is probably a little bit of acetobacter in 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 my fermentations. but based off of the paper that Blendery put out mm-hmm. and kind of my own understanding about wild fermentation, a, a, a uh, regulated and, and watched over dose of acetobacter could add to complexity mm-hmm. in, in VA, which is volatile acidity, yep. and flavor. Um, so we kind of just try and mitigate the amount uh, that acetobacter has to play. That one barrel, yeah, we kind of just filled it up and, and let it sit and and haven't really touched it. And listeners will remember, we actually talked about that Beachwood Blundery paper a couple of episodes back from when you're hearing this. So good to see it in practice and being practical, too. Oh, 100%. I've taken a lot, um, even if it has just been just theology of of, of wild beer fermentation yeah because i mean we're only i mean we're not that far away from the blundery i mean we're was it like a couple miles at most yeah about five minute drive yeah so uh good uh, good uh cultures in the air shall we say yeah absolutely well we're trying (laughs) (laughs) so do you do you remember one other than the malt vinegar that that turned out to be sort of an unfortunate disaster or actually no let's let's flip it the other way was there ever an idea that you thought I don't know this was going to work, and it turned out to be to succeed beyond your wildest dreams, or something that you were convinced wouldn't work. Um, I, uh, yeah, of course. The answer is of course. I have no clue how my hundred percent sourdough kvass with sourdough starter is going to turn out, but every time they turn out delightful. We use spent fruit in with the secondary fermentations, and they just turn out like the best kombucha slash malt beverage probiotic drink i don't even know what to call it anymore uh beverages but um i remember one of our first beers that we did was a 15 percent um uh, imperial uh sour stout if you will Mm -hmm. and when we when we were bulldogging that out of the out of the barrels it was so viscous and ropey that i was like i don't know how this is going to turn out, but we ended up blending that with a large portion of, of <clears throat> fortified port wine, and letting that sit for about two weeks, and that cleared up, and 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 that that beer became something exquisite, like uh, something that dreams are made of. I like things that are dreams are made of. Yeah. Uh, and just for the listeners, bulldogging is. I mean, it's. It's basically a way of transferring out of a barrel. It's a, an attachment that goes in the bunghole and basically yeah. allows you to suck, to suck everything out. And then ropey, at least generally in the sour world, I mean, it, that's when people refer to a beer as being sick. I mean, it actually yeah. looks like you've got tendrils of snot hanging out yeah. in your beer. Yeah, it's snotty, for yeah, sure. And a lot of times that's pediococcus and other mm-hmm. things doing their thing, and then Britannomyces and other things come in behind it and break it up, and, yeah. and, and the beer becomes well again. Yeah. So, but you guys added port to get a little extra fortification. A little fortification. I think that the that the kind of the solvent type mm-hmm. of notes from that twenty two percent port kind mm-hmm. of broke down a lot of those peptidogly- uh, peptidoglycanus type of of for- formation. And yeah, then, better that you say that than I. Yeah, um, and uh, and then the Brett kind of cleaned it up from there. It took about a year to condition in bottles. Uh, but yeah, it's, Brett's coming through yeah. like he always does. I, I'm wondering, does 
I know Sherry has a has a floor culture in it that does a lot to break down things. I wonder if port does as well. I like drinking port, but I don't I, know I, enough. I, be, I, I bet you it does. Yeah. Well, i got to get you a bottle of this, then, if you're a port fan, uh, for sure. Um, oh, yeah. I, I still have uh, very old bottles of port stashed in strategic places, waiting for special occasions. I've, I, when we first started brewing here, we've had a couple of instances where we... Um, and this is not about sour beer production, where we, you know, kind of dialing in our buffering capacities because we use only RO water. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of trying to dial that in, and sometimes, you know, your your salts don't really mm-hmm. play yeah. well. Yeah, um, they do, yeah, they don't want to get in. As we're scaling up, it's kind mm-hmm. of harder and harder to get that kind of dialed in. Well, no. It- I always warn people whenever they talk about, like, hey, I'm going to go do a collaboration at a brewery or something like that, or I want to scale this recipe up. A lot of people will try and just scale things in a linear fashion. You, yeah. know, it, it, you can get away with that with a lot, but it doesn't always work, and there are certain elements that it really doesn't work. Right. I was finding that after ferment, like, everything was good and tasty, and then after fermentation, you, you had, like, just runaway, runaway acidity or something mm-hmm. like that because... You just didn't buff. You you had zero buffering capacity mm-hmm. in your in your in your work. So well, and I've been to some breweries that are big fans of trying to get to an assertive water profile. Mm-hmm. You can tell that's one of the things that the brewer really feels is important. You know, like they want to be like, I'm going to have a British profile right. or or a German profile. Like I'm going to make a North German pills, and they take some of the stuff that they know from smaller batches that they've done scale it up and then the beer itself when you actually get in, in the glass in front of you it there are elements to it that feel like you're chewing on a rock yeah yeah um, let's actually talk a little bit about some of the unique aspects because we've talked about you know like not only this combination of the old with the new because you know obviously the old old tradition of bakeries and breweries being together and then also all the science that you bring to the equation mm-hmm. but also i mean you know the fact that you spend so much time thinking about all these cultures and the brewery itself that we're in we mentioned earlier is electrically powered yeah but uniquely so right? yeah <laughs> so tell the uh, tell the audience about yeah that. so we're we have an electric brewery and an electric bakery our electric brewery is like the electric brewery, homebrew brewery that you could build uh, from diagrams online. And then we just have elements kind of hooked up to our power source. And then um, all the electric is done via solar. Uh, we have three huge solar farms in the parking lot in the back. And then one very, very large solar farm up on the roof of the building that power the bakery and the brewery. That's a lot of power. <laughs> it's a lot of power. Um, it's it's a lot of solar power panels, and uh, luckily our neighbors here aren't industrial. Their 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 power needs are not so so heavy, so we're able to pull a majority of all the power to the building. So now was was that effort an effort on on your part, like something that you that you guys led, or was that something that you lucked into the situation here? I think I think it was I, I think it was luck. Um, the brewery was electric. Because that's what I was brewing on at home. It's just a huge brewing homebrew system. Um, the solar farm in the back was a two canopy solar farm, and since we've moved in, it has become four. And then on top of that, we used to have a gas oven that we switched for an electric oven, and and so I think now a majority of our electric use is going into keeping the ovens going. 
Baking and brewing. Yeah, the oven is on 24-7. Uh, the, the, the bakery is baking bread in the morning and then doing uh, sourdough beer malt pizzas in the evening. And so, and, and, and lately our food program has ga- been gaining steam, um, namely because of, of just the quality that, that my wife, Harmony, kind of pushes through the kitchen. And it's being written up, but now we're just getting a lot of people coming in and saying, hey, I heard the food's really, really great. Where before it was like, oh, you guys serve food? Mm-hmm. I thought this was a brewery because it's the beer lab. But now the food program has kind of just blossomed. So hey, it, whatever brings it, people in the door. And, exactly. And, and as we speak, Harmony is right below us working in the it, kitchen, yeah. making the magic happen. Exactly. Yeah, I just saw them scoring some of the some of the breads that are going into the oven right now. So, See, now, the one question I have is, since I sometimes mess around with baking uh, in a very awful fashion, I have to imagine that switching from gas to electric would also require some adjustment to the recipes because you lose the, the moisture element from the gas. A hundred percent. There was... And similarly with brew houses and new fermenters, there's going to be some sort of adjustment period, some learning to, you know, the hot spots of the oven and and the venting and the temperature and how – and we're doing sourdough. So how is your sourdough starter going to uh, kind of adjust to that? So Harmony's done – uh, countless experimental bakes to kind of dial in the right timing of our proofing mm-hmm. and how things are moving from the the retarder to the freezer to the oven to all these different parts of the bakery to make sure that you're getting the best loaf that you could get of Long Beach sourdough. I mean, this culture has been grown up off of skins of grapes and apricots grown in the backyards of our families and family friends in Five five minutes from here, so yeah. that that's great. I mean, that's like, yeah. You know, everybody talks about uh, localvorism and all that, and that yeah. really is kind of that that thing, you know. And we talk about, we've talked in the past about doing wild yeast captures and and that sort of stuff to, you know, give some more local nature to your to your area. You know, I was trying to figure out. You know, we had an episode uh, not too long ago about uh, Catarina Sour from down in Brazil mm-hmm. and how they put a very local spin on it, and that started to make me think. Okay, so what would be a Pasadena sour? You know, uh-huh. like, uh, that's what weird. would it taste like? I, I, I can't quite figure it out. It'd have to have roses in it, obviously. <laughs> exactly. You know, roses and oranges. Yeah. You know, that's, that's yeah, Pasadena. That sounds good. Yeah, hey, why not? Well, I mean, uh, Julian over at Beachwood has always had a rose saison that, yeah. that, that he's done for years, so yep. it makes total sense. There you go. Let's talk a little bit. I mean, you mentioned using sourdough when you do the kvass. Right. What have been some of the other crossovers that you've done between the brewery and the bakery back and forth? Well, like I mentioned before, the bakery uses Pilsner malt Mm -hmm. a lot in some of their pouliche baguettes in order to increase flavor and and shelf stability and kind of make a more fluffier baguette. Uh, for, that we use for our sandwiches that go in the panini press, mm-hmm. and then um, well, because I mean, malt has a very long history in being used in baking because it is so hydroscopic. It, exactly, it, it holds on to moisture. It holds on to moisture, and then you get a lot of more of the diastatic qualities of the malt. Helps with fermentation. Um, so our sourdough, our sourdough, which we've uh, started, which we've had analyzed as Brett Brooks actually likes a slower more uh lager like if you will <laughs> fermentation in baking so uh i also think that it loves that malt kind of uh, mm-hmm. 
the diastatic malt character. Oh, yeah, if uh, you're doing like a cold proofing, like an old, uh, an overnight type proofing, yeah. you get that dia- diastase in there. Yeah, and it breaks it down extra little bit. A little yeah. bit, yeah. I know. So we do we do um, our 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 fermentation is 18 hours mm-hmm. fermentation overnight in the cold storage. Yeah, um, and our pizza dough fermentation, I believe, is 72 hours. Uh, and it's also sourdough. And everybody comes in the door and they're like, which one's the sourdough loaf? Everything is sourdough. You know, it's just a matter of different flavors and the different loaves and everything like that. Um, we do use beer in some of the bread. We have a whipped beer bread that we re- that I really like. It just overflows with, with just glutinous type of diastatic, like that flavor that you're that you're that you were talking about and we use the whip beer in that so mm-hmm. it's a mixed fermentation going right back into everything um, as far as the beers are concerned we have a whole like line of gozes that we that we ferment primarily with uh, their kettle kettle soured but I don't use heat I just ferment in the kettle it's this one over here it's called uh, warning may contain fruit um, which this is part of this trend that we've talked about on on the podcast about you know uh, fresh fruit going in late into the process. Yeah, this is this sits on fruit for three days and then going straight into kegs. Um, mango, pineapple, sourdough starter, fermented. Ooh. See, what's interesting to me is that I think because it has had that time to sit, it's not. It's not the super sweet fruit. I mean, there's still some of that pineapple juice type flavor to it. Mm-hmm. But then you get that funky mango thing minus some of the sugar with the, the, the acid coming up. Well, I think the big thing uh, that you're missing some of the, the, the sweetness is because we don't put lactose mm. in there. And a lot of those breweries, not, it's not just the fruit that, right. they're, that they're putting in. They're throwing in lactose sugar. Because yeah, you call this a smoothie goes. Yeah. And it's... Um, we don't use lactose, use maltodextrin, mm-hmm. and we don't sterilize the wort after we kettle sour it. When we don't kettle sour it, we essentially use an open-top fermenter. Mm-hmm. We use the kettles as an open-top fermenter, and then we just move it right out of there it, onto the fruit for three days, add the maltodextrin, and then and we, we bring it down to uh, packaging, mm-hmm. temperature, and carbonate it all at the same time. So... We're basically, I mean, okay, you say not a kettle sour, but I assume like for a little while you've got the, the wort up at a temperature. For a little while, yeah. Right. And, and so, yeah, it makes perfect sense just to keep it in the kettle. Yeah, so it's just an, all my vessels are always full, so we just, we just, uh, we just use that as a fermenter, an mm-hmm. open-top fermenter. Oh, and, and I've known a number of homebrewers, uh, like Jeff Renner, who's a famous homebrewer, always used to try and preach to people back in the late 90s and early 2000s. You don't have to have all these separate fermenters and everything else. He's like, I go and I make my lager, and I chill it down, and then I put it right back into the boil kettle and use the boil kettle as my fermenter. Yeah. You know? It's already sanitized. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so you do a lactobacillus uh, you know, type of... This is sourdough starter. Oh, this is... So we so, just okay, we so put, this is another we put 12 quarts of sourdough starter into five barrels of, of wort in the kettle and just let it go. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that, we don't boil it again. We move it from there. And no, and no separate Saccharomyces pitch. It's just what's ever in the culture. This is just sourdough starter. Okay. And um, there are loaves in the mash. I always throw a little bit of loaves in the mash just to get it really dexterous. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and it keeps the cycle going, too. Yeah. 
Yeah, and we and we have loaves, you know, like half loaves and partials and everything like that. Uh, well, it's a it's a brilliant uh, waste reduction program. Yeah. Well, that's that's like our main goal here is to reduce as much waste as possible. Solar, you know, we don't we barely have any waste. All of our grains go to farmers, so so there's there's definitely a conscious aspect to that. And then we move it from the kettle, so it's in the kettle probably uh, about four to five days because we're doing a full fermentation in there and then after that it's moved it's moved to a fermenter at four degrees celsius and we do everything in celsius Mm -hmm. um and then at that time we are blending uh, mangoes and pineapples in a vitamix uh we used to use a huge immersion blender but i like to get it really really kind of uh broken down and and then we put it in there with a little bit of maltodextrin we we're trying to do an a vegan mm-hmm. as many vegan beers or how as many like animal not included beers mm-hmm. as, as possible so we don't use lactose at all in our brewery so it's interesting to me because okay i definitely get the pineapple i definitely get the mango the other thing i'm getting is i get a little bit of a jalapeno oh uh, really yeah there's a little bit of jalapeno on the back end and i don't know if that's just my brain building that out of the association of pineapple and mango and so obviously you know i'm thinking like a mango pineapple salsa yeah yeah you know, like, I, I think you are i might be <laughs> hey it wouldn't be the first time my brain's made something out of whole cloth um and so we go you know like you said you go puree in a couple of days and then into packaging and then packaging and so just keep it cold the whole yep. time do you know how much residual sugar you have left in this? Or yeah, we're we're about six Play-Doh. It's pretty okay. high. Yeah, so it's the sourness is cutting through a lot of that. Mm-hmm. So ten twenty four in homebrewers' terms, thereabouts. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I know we joked about the fact that uh, you are sh- you are sending some crawlers out, but I assume with instructions like yeah, drink now. Yeah, yeah. We write extra on on those ones, uh, and we don't put it in the fridge, so it's always packaged. Mm-hmm. Uh, to order the, right. those ones. Um, well, I imagine otherwise you'd be uh, cleaning up your fridge periodically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, tr- we're, we're trying our best to be smart about it. Um, uh, the maltodextrin is fermentable, so mm, yeah. um, we try and keep those as close to the chest as possible. <laughs> Do you know it, how long of a typical lifespan does this have, like in terms of the shelf? We, we only make five barrels at a time of this, so... We haven't even gotten close to the to the full lifespan of it because it, we usually rip through five barrels of this in less than a month. Yeah. So. Well, I, I could see this being very uh, very popular on a very hot day. Yeah. I mean, today today is not a particularly hot day. No, no, no. Beach, but, uh, that that's because we're having a nice brief respite before uh, Mother Nature reminds us <laughs> winter's not here yet. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people like they get a crowler and they go right down to the beach and they crack it on the beach. Uh, when it's hot out and that's kind of like drink this today yeah well and i keep trying to tell people you know about southern california it's like look you guys don't understand our summer doesn't actually start until july you know late june when it gets really hot yeah and then you know we get this little brief respite in the start of september and then october comes along and mother nature turns on turns on the blast furnace again so we've got a we've got a couple of late months coming where this is still going to be a perfect thing and yeah, yeah i could see that right right up there with the salt air mm-hmm. yeah that'd yeah. be good and this is this is I, I i could i could produce these like once every two weeks easy um 
it's very flavorful. There's definitely complexity there. It's not just lactobacillus. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that jalapeno that you're getting, I, I in my mind, it's almost like, um, and 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 not to throw people off, it's kind of like a green olive, mm-hmm. and like kind of like a that you would throw in a martini or something yeah. like that, and um, like a manzanella, exactly, and. I get that flavor, and I know that that is from an interaction with the pineapple and the sourdough starter. Because I've made tapache before with oh. our sourdough starter. Tapache is a just a straight up pineapple booze. Yeah, pineapple booze, um, and I got that in there. So it's like some sort of oxidized, funky, wild fermentation. With uh, I'm guessing pineapples have a a ton of citric and malic and all sorts of acids going on. Well, and then, and then of course the I'm I'm wondering because I also know pineapples have a lot of papain. Oh, them. that that oh, uh, who knows? Maybe there's some sort of like crossover between uh, uh, papain. So you guys don't have to go look it up. Is if you've ever bought meat tenderizer, <laughs> that's papain. <laughs> so papain is an enzyme that that does a lot of uh, destructive things. So I'm I'm curious. There's got yeah. I would imagine there's uh, there's some really interesting and complex interactions happening in there. Mm-hmm. And I, I suspect there's also uh, interactions between the pineapple and the mango as well. Yeah. So, so uh, I, yeah, it's just more work, uh, research, and analyzation that we. Uh, uh, I guess I'm going to have to drink more and read more. Yeah, darn. <laughs> <laughs> so now we've covered. I mean, we started with yeah, arguably probably the most normal type of beer that you could—that pilsner, yeah, yeah. Uh, the rigs. And now we've gone through this world of some of, some of these really kind of crazy crossovers and interactions both between, you know, the bakery and the brewery and fruits and ideas and, you know, different cultures and, and oddball ideas. And now, of course, I think we have to get to what seems to be the thing that's fueling everybody right now, and that's, you know, the hazy IPA type idea, because we're coming back to something that is sort of in between those two realms, right? Yeah. It's new, but pretty standard now amongst, amongst brewers, especially here in Southern California. And so uh, this is the LB420? Yeah. So um, essentially when we got started, we did a lot of collaborations with Laguna Beach, and we called the series Pound for Pound. And there was Pound for Pound, one, two, three... Uh, we called it 2.0, and 2.0 was just a standard 7.6% mm-hmm. hazy IPA, uh, and people loved it. I thought it was excellent, and the haziness just just endured for for a very long time. Well, um, and looking at the glass that, that we have in front of us right now, I mean, this has a solid haze to it that, it, again, it comes back to the fact that we're sitting above the bakery, but I mean, it's almost—it almost looks doughy in a way, you know, the the the, the color that's there and that and that sort of deep milkiness. Yeah, yeah, I really like the color of this, and 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 it's almost—it's definitely the lightest pale of of mm-hmm. what we got going on here. And then we always use a uh, Citra and 007 as kind of like our base hops. Mm-hmm. And then in this one, we put Amarillo and Huel Melon. So there's a definitely like almost like a honeydew kind of melon character. I wonder, I wonder if Huel is what's giving me that. Um, it's a little bit of spicy, grassy uh, type of note that I kind of think of more German, right? Yeah. Uh, so yeah. that's got to be the Huel. Yeah, yeah. I did one with Belma. 
which is all, another one of those new age German hops mm-hmm. that um, did the same thing. Because it kind of give you like tangy strawberries in the nose, but then like a grassy kind of bitterness. What I do with my hazies is that I do use a bittering charge, mm-hmm. and they end up to be a little bit drier. Um, well, yeah. Again, this is not this is not sweet. It's not. No. It's not. I I know everybody's hunting for the 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 juicy yeah, term. This I, is not that. Not, no. I mean, this has all those characteristics of that traditional West Coast IPA in terms of. Yeah, big round hop flavor, mm-hmm. but without necessarily the big big bite. Yeah. But there's still a firm bitterness in the yeah. back. It makes drinkability very very high. Yeah. So even like we 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 pulled um, our last version out of archive for this, and mm-hmm. it was still drinkable. <laughs> after, after how long? Four months. Wow. <laughs> I, I should I should I should change that. People really enjoyed it because it still had that bitterness, that kind of went up against the malt sweetness. Mm-hmm. So usually what you have in these hazies is you have oxidation and then there's no bitterness to kind of like balance out that oxidation mm-hmm. at, at all. So you're just drinking like grain juice. Right. You know, so here you still get that West Coast kind of feel to it. And so now are you using the citron and whatnot as your bittering charge or is that... We use Magnum Yay. for our bittering. Listeners of the podcast will know that I pretty much always use uh, Magnum or Warrior. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, for the same reason that you probably have already told millions of people, you get less vegetable matter mm-hmm. and, and more bang for your buck. It's clean. Yeah. And it just provides a, a base note. Yeah. I, for me, I use Magnum in almost uh, all of our non-Belgian uh, style uh, beer. So if it's Belgian, I just go Saz. And I, I'm a really, really simple kind of brewer. It's like Pilsner, wheat, Saz. That's like, I, I think that would um, constitute at least 80% of my recipe development. I'm not that far behind you. Some slightly different choices, but yeah, that same sort of, same sort of notion. Yeah. Find the things that you know how they work for you. And then manipulate them to get to where it is that you want to be. Exactly. You know, to explore and, a new idea. And I try and use like a staggered, like, um, or trying to like a free rise fermentation techniques to kind of get those bigger, maltier flavors from there. So even even in this one where I'm trying to get some sort of like body and character in there, like mm-hmm. I'll ramp up, I'll do a diacetyl rest for about three, uh, three days and then I'll crash it down. And then mm-hmm. that's where these hazies really come into play is like after crashing is that three pounds per barrel of, 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 of dry hopping mm-hmm. and then crashing. And then how do you get the beer into into packaging without the hops, but super fresh, and you don't want any oxygen exposure. How do, how do you sieve it. it off the uh, sieve it out of soup into, into exactly. beer? <laughs> Hop soup for sure. And I'm guessing you know the uh, given your predilections towards simple grain bills. I mean, again, we're talking pilsner and oats or or some other. So in this in this in this um, this beer, we're going to be doing mostly pilsner malt. Mm-hmm. And then we have uh, some wheat malt, okay. torrified wheat, oats, mm-hmm. and uh, some dextrin, just to just to give it a little. Mm. Yeah, um, and that's pretty much it. Cool. Well, and 
like I said, I mean, this is smooth. It's approachable. It has a nice baseline to it mm-hmm. behind it, and then you get all those very clean, distinctive flavors up front of you know the different hops, including that sort of that spicy German characteristic from the Huel, mm-hmm. in addition to its fruitiness. Yeah. Um, what sort of yeast? This is the London Ale Three. The, I love the fact that. Talking to the folks at Yeast, they they're like, eh, you know, we always used to have problems moving London Three, and now it's the most popular strain. Right. <laughs> and then we, um, I've done I've done a double IPA where we had Sactois in ah. about ab- about halfway through uh, fermentation, and and that kind of tr- dries it out and gives it kind of a Belgiany kind of pear and apple type of note. Mm-hmm. To it, which I think is really, really pleasant in the, in this type of beer, also, and also very hard to flock out, so it <laughs> remains hazy. I don't think this is yeast. We biofine our mm-hmm. our hazy IPAs. I, I believe that this is just. Um, there's a theory that there's these conjugations of starches and mm-hmm. hop oils, right. biotransformation, yep. if you will. Um, and I, I, I believe that wholeheartedly because we brought that other version of this out after four months and it was the same color, same opa- opacity and, and, yeah. and everything. Well, I think, I think the big trick is once you get the right yeast selection and, and you know, to do your, your dry hopping, you know, once you figure out your dry hopping schedule, I think those are the two keys in order to get the haze. Right. And then beyond that, everything else is protecting it from heat and protecting it from oxygen. Yeah, that's that's huge for us. Like if if our cold rooms are full, I'll like package as much as I can, fill the cold rooms, but then I'll leave the rest in the in the, in the tank mm-hmm. to fill later because like I'm not. There's no way I'm leaving these beers out. No, you know, not even for a second. While I figure other things going on, so they're they're just going straight into store into cold storage. So yeah, yeah that's a it's one of the most important things. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I'll tell you, these five beers that we've had up here and talking to you and seeing the brewery in operation and seeing the, the bakery in operation, the nice little crowd that's uh, talking behind us you know, as we're up here in the, in the loft. Yeah. Kind of nice. I love this place. I don't spend enough time here. <laughs> so there's, like, not a lot of operational stuff that goes up here, but it is definitely the most relaxed part of the brewery. Mm-hmm. Maybe because it's not a lot of operational stuff. So, like, I like to come up here and it's, like, quiet and kind of secret away from all the all the hubbub of the brewery so that's why i like being a computer guy i just drag my laptop someplace and there i am yeah but um i mean at the same time and you guys you guys are getting ready to grow and you got the little brewery here but it's opportunities abound yes we have a lot in store this next year i i like that we are able to grow uh, within within our first two years, because um, we are really small right now. We're in a we're in about four thousand square feet total. Um, tiny little brewery with a bakery in it. You have to understand. Yeah. You know? yeah, you've, you've already sacrificed a third of your space. Exactly. So um, so for us, growth had you know had to come a little bit faster. Um, so we ended up taking uh, the space next door, mm-hmm. and right now the plan is to uh, put our dry storage in there, but hopefully in the next six months we're going to get a couple fooders and put more barrels in there and try and push out more of these wild ales. Um, there is plans to upgrade the brew house eventually. <laughs> Please. <laughs> 
says the man who doesn't want to keep uh, cycling as many brews and you know the th- uh, triple brew days. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there's you know there there are plans to put in bigger brew houses, more fermenters, and everything like that. So yeah, we the, um, pr- probably by the new year we'll have taken on another eighty five hundred square feet. And then beyond that, you also have uh, tap room opportunities. Exactly. So end of 2019, we hope to open up two tap rooms, one in North Long Beach and then one in Downey, across from the uh, Downey Gateway, the, the mall. There we go. See? Yeah. Look at it. And, you know, all out, of a, all out of a funky little idea for a place that combines, well, the old and the new. Yeah. So, <laughs> sir, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. I, I definitely think... Uh, guys, there's more to talk about. And if there's a particular subject that you want us to kind of dig into and get deep and nerdy on, well, that's what the Brew Files is for. And I always need an excuse to come down to Long Beach anyway. So let me know at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You know, what exactly do you want us to explore? Do you want us to talk a little bit more about you know, how you do those wild cultures, the sourdough cultures? What sort of interactions you see? Uh, is there something else that you'd, you'd like to tell us? Find out. You know how to reach me, podcastexperimentalbrew.com, or text me at 626-765-1AL. There we go. Thank you. Man, I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. What a fascinating place and concept for a brewery. I mean, it's weird. It's both pushing the boundary and also being very hyper-traditionalist, in a way. It's (laughs) returning us to some of our roots. Yeah, you know what, man? And it made me want to try the bread as much as it made me want to try the beer. Oh, yeah. Well, every time I go down there, I come back with a loaf of bread because you have to. Her her breads are fantastic. All righty. Please stick around. When we come back, we're going to wrap this baby up with some questions and hopefully some good answers. Uh, Quick tip and something other. We'll be right back. Explore the history of tart, fruity, and refreshing Goza-style beer with the latest book from Brewer's Publication, Goza, Brewing a Classic German Beer for the Modern Era. Written by award-winning veteran brewer Fal Allen, Goza includes 27 recipes including Sea Quench Sour from Dogfish Head Craft Brewery and Ruben Brewer's 2017 Great American Beer Festival gold medal winning Goza. Right now, Brewers Publications is giving experimental homebrewing listeners a discount on Goza. Go to BrewersPublications.com and use code EXPERIMENTAL to take 20% off Goza. That's right. You'll save 20% when you use code EXPERIMENTAL at BrewersPublications.com. It's time to wrap up this show and get out of here, and we're going to start off with some questions, and we're going to try and answer them. All right, so our first question comes from Kenneth Knott, who says, I recall on one of your podcasts, you mentioned an alternative for a jockey box, where you put the keg into some kind of bag filled with ice and dispense. Do you have a link for that thing? I don't even have a memory of that thing. I know, so this is where we're going to reach out to the podcast audience. Uh, do you guys remember us talking about a bag that you filled with ice and dispensed? Because I'm drawing a blank. I mean, I know you could you could definitely do that with the brew jacket. 
you could, you know, take that puppy and put it around a keg and fill it with ice. I don't think you'd want to fill it with ice. No, but you, you got the general idea. I mean, you're not going to need that much ice. Um, but the other thing I can immediately think of, because I'm really pulling a, you know, complete mind wipe on this, is there are plenty of homebrewed type solutions out there where people are using, you know, say, nice, you know, clean, fresh, never used before trash cans. You know, like with wheels on them and turning those into giant walking ice boxes that they can put taps on or anything else that I know about. But yeah, right now I'm I'm kind of drawing a blank on the whole bag with ice and uh, making a tap box out of it. Yeah, I mean, like Drew said, there are ways you could MacGyver something together, but I cannot for the life of me remember what you're talking about there, Kenneth. So if anybody out there does, let us know, jog our memories and we'll admit to being idiots. Well, we'll also admit to the fact that, I mean, we've now generated who knows how many hours of content, and my brain's just not that big. <laughs> That's right. The next question is from Dan Chisholm, and it goes to Drew. Dan says, I was wondering if the brewer from Hair of the Dog bottle conditions his beer. I'm sorry if I missed this from the podcast. I found it interesting that many of his beers are very drinkable after 20 years. I've noticed that my own barley wines seem to age much better when they are bottle conditioned as opposed to being filled from a keg. So what did Alan have to say? Yep. Cause of course I'm not going to answer that question for Alan. That's Alan's question. And I reached out to Alan and he said, yes, I add fermenting beer to the finished beer when we bottle to achieve carbonation. So he's not even just bottle conditioning. Yeah. He's adding fermenting beer to the bottle. Yeah, to basically be able to poisoning. Yeah. And so, I mean, he's doing it in an old-fashioned way, which kind of makes a lot of sense for what Alan's doing. And, yeah, there's a lot of people who speculate that that sort of thing does a lot to safeguard you from long-term oxidative damage. Yeah, I could I could really see that, you know. If you're adding actively fermenting beer, it's going to really consume any oxygen in that bottle. So, yep. Well, wow. and let's face it, Alan's beers are also really designed to age. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. He makes strong beer with the idea of aging them, and boy, do they hold up nicely. Yes, they do. All right, and those are our questions for today. Why only so many questions? Because, well, long interview, and we also need more questions from you. So send us questions at questions at experimentalbrew.com or podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Give us your questions. We'll feature them on the show. And don't forget, it's not too much longer before we get to our next all Q&A episode. Oh, God. Oh, boy. Here we go again. All right, and now it's time for a quick tip. And Denny, since uh, since I did the last one, or one of our listeners did the last one, it's your turn. It's my turn. This comes uh, from a conversation that I was having with a gentleman on Facebook today. He was using the technique of capping his mash with the dark grains. He said that he had been getting harshness from uh, using dark grains, and uh, by adding them at the end of the mash just before you sparge, that it eliminated that harshness for him. And yes, it, it certainly will. Uh, it's a technique that I think a lot of people learn from Gordon Strong's book. Uh, Gordon is a big advocate of doing it. Uh, I've played with it some, and I found that when you do that, it really changes the character you get from your dark malts. And sometimes that's going to be okay, and sometimes it's not. Uh, one of the real reasons to do it is uh, the dark grains don't pull down your mash pH like they normally would, so you really don't have to deal with the mash pH. On the other hand, there are ways around doing that that you don't have to. 
uh, this gentleman had mentioned that he had never really paid any attention to his mash pH at all. So it's not too surprising that he was finding a harshness from his dark grains. Uh, I don't know the brand that he's using, but I had found also that I was getting kind of a, a harsh character from it sometimes. So I started playing around with different brands of chocolate malt and uh, found that Castle Chocolate gives you a really nice flavor without that harshness that I tend to get. I switched to that in the no-tie brown ale that I was talking about earlier, and it just made that beer ten times better than it was before. So I would say, you know, mash capping works for some beers and may not work as well for others. My preference is to deal with adjusting the pH for the dark malt and to use different brands of dark malts for different effects in the beer. Well, there you go. I do actually like uh, mash capping, but yeah, you're right. It does give you a different character. So as long as you're accommodating for that, you're fine. But at the yeah. same time, if you, if you can make it work so that it ends up in your mash... That might just be easier. And I, you know, and I discovered this uh, when I was working on a, a porter recipe, and uh, I had tried to get it a little bit mellower and to reduce the harshness, and I eventually went so far that it became insipid. So I went back the other way and started adding the dark greens to the mash and even threw in a touch of roast barley just to give it a little bite. Yep, there you go. And, of course, now that leads us to, you know, our final segment of the show before we get you on your way. Something other than beer, because not everything comes in a glass. You know, we've talked on the show before about my love of the TV show The Good Place on NBC. Uh, season three has recently started, and if you haven't watched The Good Place, you really should. It's actually incredibly hysterically funny and also somehow incredibly educational about morals and ethics. And that makes it sound weirdly boring, but no, trust me, it's actually really good. And... Like I said, I've been kind of obsessed with the show and, and really digging it. it. Stars Kristen Bell and Ted Danson. And last summer, the folks at NBC decided that they were going to start a podcast about the show. And it's an actual official NBC podcast called The Good Place, The Podcast. And it's hosted by one of the actors in the show, uh, Mark Evan Jackson. And he uh, he sits down and they review and they go through each episode of the show. And remember, it's yeah, they're now starting on season three. Each season's 12 episodes long or 13 episodes long. And so they walk through with the actors, the creator of the show, Michael Shore, people who are doing the set work or the design work or the casting or, you know, whatnot and what have you, and getting them to talk and break down the particular episode that, that they're looking at that week and talk about the, the whole process of making the show. And to me, it gives a much greater understanding of the show and it also shows just how much thought is put into what actually appears on screen. So if you enjoy The Good Place, go download The Good Place, the podcast. It's free wherever you get your podcast, like where you got this one, and give it a listen because it's really kind of cool to learn some of the behind-the-scenes mechanics and thought process for the show. Yeah, I always like uh, behind-the-scenes shows, you know, how it was made kind of shows. I w maybe it's just because I've been in the production business for so long, but I find those fascinating. Yeah, it's really good. And it, I, to my mind, like I said, it, it helps deepen kind of some of the understanding of the things that are going on. So there you go. My recommendation for the week uh, for something other than beer, The Good Place, The Podcast. All right. I think it's time to wrap this baby up. Thanks a lot for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. 
Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on a whole bunch of different places. Drew hangs out on the uh, homebrewing subreddit, as well as the Slack homebrew forum. I'm on a whole bunch of different homebrew discussion forums, including the AHA forum mainly. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics or experiments, recipes, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. If you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget, you can always leave us a voicemail or a text at 626-765-1AL. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.